You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a very special edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ross Harris. Welcome to the show, Ross. How are you doing? Good to be here. Very good, thank you. Of course, people will be very familiar with you from uh, from the Premier Sports coverage on Pro 14, of the Pro 14, and of course uh, BBC Wales. Uh, but here to talk to you about something completely different today, and that's the, the book that you've just written, Behind the Dragon. Uh, perhaps you could just start by giving us a, a very quick summary and kind of what inspired you to write the book. Um, it, it actually came about in a, a fairly sort of random way. It was a random encounter. Um, a couple of years ago, I wrote Adam Jones's autobiography, and um, to my astonishment, it got nominated for a, a cross sports book award. And the ceremony for that was in Lord's Cricket Ground, and um, it was nominated in two categories and didn't win in either. So I was kind of commiserating at the bar afterwards, and a, a Scottish guy came up to me. Um, uh, ostensibly to tell me how much he'd enjoyed the book and it was still in that kind of twilight period after it had been released and I, I was just kind of amazed that anyone had read it, let alone had nice things to say about it, so uh, I was happily accepting the praise from this guy and he was sort of saying, oh you know oh, any other year it would have probably won and so I was kind of nodding and, mm. and uh, you know smiling and accepting the praise and it only occurred to me about five minutes into the conversation that he was the publisher of the book that had beaten right. Adam Jones' yeah, book yeah. to the top spot. So all of a sudden, I felt absolutely terrible after, <laughs> you know, just as I say, happily accepting the praise for five minutes and then realizing <laughs> I hadn't offered him any kind of congratulation. Yeah. So I, I then overcompensated by showering him with, with praise on his book. And the, the book that won was called No Borders. Yeah. And it was a, a post war history of Irish rugby uh, and explored a lot of the themes, you know, of the Ulster and the Protestant North and the, and the Republic of Ireland and it was a fascinating book um, but that was published by the same guys that published Behind the Dragon 
Uh, and on that evening, Pete Burns, who's the MD of, of Polaris, just gave me his business card and said, look, I've got a proposition for you. Give me a call and mm. get five minutes. And, and the very next day, I was actually flying at the crack of dawn to New Zealand to cover the Wales-New Zealand tour. So this card went in my wallet, and I didn't see it for another five, six weeks. And, um, and I, I stumbled across it. How rude, I never got back in touch with this guy. And that was the point at which he proposed this to me. You know, yeah. Like a no borders in Wales, but instead of being post-war, we took it all the way back to 1881 and the formation of the WIU. So, uh, yeah, quite a, quite a big undertaking. It took me probably a bit longer than I, I first thought it would. And, yeah, the fruits of the labour are, are very, very clear. As much as anything, I'm kind of working up biceps just uh, just reading it because it <laughs> it's a very, very comprehensive book and, and goes into great detail. But we, we were chatting just before uh, we turned the mics on. It's perhaps told in a slightly unconventional way. Yeah, very much so. And it, it follows the same formula as No Borders and, and others in the, the series. Um, it's an oral history, so it's largely told through the, the voice and the eyes of the players and the coaches involved. Um, and that gives an interesting effect because, you know, as you know, the past is not necessarily the same viewed yeah. through different filters. And it's quite interesting how you go back to certain periods in history how certain people remember them differently, have different emotional reactions to them. So rather than it being one sort of definitive narrative, it's lots of voices all contributing to this slightly messier narrative. Um, and yeah, you just get different characters, different voices, different emotional perspectives. Um, and it was just fascinating, you know, delving into the archives and just trying to uncover some of the less documented stories, some, some more... Kind of nuggets from the past yeah. that perhaps haven't been heard before. That that was the mission, really. To you know, a lot of a lot has been written about Welsh rugby, particularly the seventies and, yep. and the current era. It was just trying to kind of get beneath the surface and find stuff that hasn't necessarily been told before. Oh, I think you've you've definitely succeeded in in doing that. And obviously, along the way, you, you talked to virtually every notice, notable figure from the history of of Welsh rugby. Did you have a favourite that you enjoyed speaking to the most, um, or a couple? Rob Jones was a hero of mine mm. growing up um, and I remember being slightly in awe when I got to work with him on Scrum 5 yeah. uh, when I first started on Scrum 5 and you know the kind of never me heroes thing but with Rob he couldn't have been more <laughs> welcoming more likeable and, and actually a funnier bloke than you, you ever realised and he's great company um, and he's got almost this stand-ups comic timing so he'd tell some of the stories and I would be rolling with laughter thinking how am I going to do this justice you know to, to put it into words because often the humour of something is lost on the page mm. you know you have to work hard to capture the moment so he was brilliant I, I spent so long in his company just telling story after story sadly some of them didn't make it in simply because I had to follow a, a reasonably strict narrative yeah and some of these stories, as much as I tried to crowbar them in, they just wouldn't work. But he was definitely a favourite. Phil Bennett, probably another. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up a Scarlets fan, and my my Dickey was ticket secretary at Stradley Park, growing up. So I kind of I feel a real emotional attachment to the late seventies, early eighties, Sanetti side. And I met Bill Fennett when I was a young kid in Sanetti Town Centre. And I ran home excitedly to tell my dad that I'd met Bill Fennett. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, 
I figured out his, his name was actually Phil Bennett a little while later. Yeah. But he was another one when I got to work alongside him. Mm. I, I was almost kind of speechless in his presence. But, but um, he was amazing because, like Rob, he's he's just a natural raconteur. Yeah. You know, he can weave a story and, and keep you spellbound. And so with him, it, it was barely much effort to turn what he'd said into something. With others, you know, you have to kind of take the the germ of a story and flesh it out and elaborate a bit but with him it was just poetry I was going to say because it does fit it comes across as though <coughs> you've got most people feel like there's, there's the guard down and it's not a polished media stock response it feels like what you're doing is, is giving us that peek into the dressing room and what things are really like yeah and that, and that was the aim Jed you know because uh, particularly in a, in a contemporary era you know players are media trained um, and they're sort of told what to say to a certain extent and, and I think sometimes sports coverage can suffer because mm. of that because you don't really get behind the personalities of the players involved you know when you compare it to stuff like NFL and yeah, boxing yeah, yeah. and the, the sort of access and, and coverage they get and a lot of it is theatre particularly in boxing um, but yeah I just wanted you know without betraying any confidence or trust because obviously it's all about relationships and the fact that these guys contributed you know so I, I didn't want anyone to think anything would be taken out of context. I was very careful that it was a faithful um, reproduction of what they'd said. But, but yeah, just as you say, getting someone in an environment where you're not necessarily just off the training paddock or you're not yeah. just out of a press conference and your perspective is a little more relaxed. And particularly when you delve back into the annals of history, you know, where you know a lot of them, it's an exercise in nostalgia. They yeah. can kind of relive some of the glories of the, you know, the tours and the the tournaments they took part in so yeah I think just getting beneath the veneer was, was certainly an aim and hopefully I've pulled it off to a degree oh yeah certainly certainly would agree with that as you say it covers a huge you know the, the entire history of Welsh rugby and obviously we haven't got time to uh, to talk through all of that so I thought with it being World Cup year we'd concentrate on some of the some of those kind of critical World Cup uh, stories so I'd like to start if that's alright with with 1999 Wales on a a long unbeaten run, host for the tournament. From what you've written in the book, it seemed as though there was a, there was a real sense of belief in that side, not just that they could perform, but that they could go and win it. Definitely. You know, they, they, they went on a 10-game mm. winning streak, ultimately, which until recently, under, under Warren Gallant, that hadn't been equaled for 20-odd for years or whatever it was. So there was a, a genuine sense of belief. And it was a, a strange period because... Not long prior to Graham Henry getting involved, yeah. they'd lost 96-13 to South Africa, in South Africa, and, and had it not been for a drop ball over the line, it would have been 100 points and, and easily the darkest day in Welsh rugby history. We've had a few of them. <laughs> so um, that was the most remarkable thing, was the speed of the turnaround. Yeah. Because within months of that defeat, they lost by eight points to South Africa in um, Cardiff. And then in the pre-World Cup warm-ups they beat South Africa for the first time ever so in the space of 12 months they went from the, the worst ever defeat in Welsh rugby history to one of the most celebrated I remember that first South Africa game really really keen it was at Wembley actually it was just, yeah, before, right. it was just before moving back to the, or moving to the millennium for the first time and I was at that stage in my life where I hadn't seen Wales do that to a, to a Southern Hemisphere mm. so I even looked close to being a, a Southern Hemisphere side and I felt at that, you know, admittedly as a, a naive 13-year-old kid, that 
oh, this is it, that things are going to be different. But that really is what happened. There was just this wave of optimism that followed. Completely. The whole Great Redeemer thing. Mm. You know, the Western Mail, actually, the national newspaper, was actually accused in the letters page of blasphemy because they referred <laughs> to times, right? the Great Redeemer and you know, the, the kind of allusions to this godly yeah. figure. And even Graham Henry himself admitted afterwards he was completely perplexed by the, the weight of emotion and the weight of expectation. And this is coming from a New Zealander. Um, but whatever he did, you know, he, he just instilled a sense of self-belief. Steve Black was a, a really prominent character in that period as well. The, he, he was officially the fitness coach. Yeah. He was, you know, a lot of the guys in the book refer to the fact that he was more of a psychologist, really, because he himself was never... You know, he never looked the picture of health. No. Steve Black, he was a, he's a big old fella, but uh, reportedly one of the strongest in that setup. He could probably bench press more than <laughs> most of the players, but it was more how he got into their minds and persuaded some of these players, many of whom were riven by self-doubt, like David James, yeah, yeah. as he admits in the book, just persuaded them that they were among the world's best. And it was almost that extra 1% or 2% that turned them into very talented players, to very talented players who believed they could beat the best. You know, Peter Rogers, another example, wanted to be a Springbok. You know, had Welsh parentage, had played in London Irish, so could have qualified for England as well, wanted to play for South Africa, in the end joined Graham Henry's revolution. And there was a, a point where, which, which he played France in that 99 campaign, and he was, in his own words, um, I don't know if I can swear on this point. Yeah, please he do. Was shitting like, himself. Like I said, we had Die Bishop on last <laughs> year, so you've you got, you got plenty of room. But... Um, he, he admits then that within a couple of scrubs, he thought it was easy because yeah. he'd been tearing it up in South Africa against, you know, well, he's actually said that he found scrummaging at test level easier than at club level in South Africa, let alone provincial level in South Africa. So I think guys like him came in and thought, hang on a minute, you know, I'm, I'm better than I realised. Yeah. And that self-belief just seemed to snowball until they got to their own World Cup and, and many of them still believe they could have won that World Cup. You know, yeah. they, they lost convincingly to Australia in the quarters, but again, as is explored in the book, there were some contentious decisions, yeah, yeah. a try that was given despite a pass in the build-up moving forward and, and maybe some, some penalties at scrum time that went against them. So you can, you can kind of go back to every World Cup campaign and think if, maybe, should have, could have, maybe would have won. We'll, we'll, we'll get on to 2011 <coughs> in a bit, which is the, the ultimate what-if moment in my life, I think. But in that chapter kind of concentrating on the, the, the great redeemer if you like you've chosen to concentrate on Chris Wyatt for mm. one of those who actually is one of the few guys that you don't speak to directly in there but his teammates have plenty to say about him yeah the one man riot <laughs> and, and I actually did get in touch with Chris Wyatt and he is one of the most elusive yeah. characters in Welsh rugby I remember we did a piece with him uh, for Scrum 5 a few years back when he was living in Aix-en-Provence and he was player I remember the piece yeah, yeah. Uh, it was brilliant because you talk about you know the modern players being kind of PR trained and stuff and he could not have been more opposite to that you know stories in the book about him rocking up to the Vale of the Morgan for a, a two week camp with a plastic carrier bag with a two litre bottle of full fat coke and 20 chocolate bars and just being delighted that he was being put up for a fortnight in a, a luxury hotel um but yeah, he was such a character out in Axon Provence yeah. and that the French guys loved him. Real man. Throwback as well, yeah. Total yeah. throwback. Um, so I, I was kind of desperate to get him in. And I, we exchanged a few texts and he's one of these guys that would not reply for a month and yeah. then he'd reply and then you'd fix something up and then, you know, you wouldn't hear anything from him. And it reached the point where I thought, Do you know what? It, you almost get a better impression of the guy 
from the stories other people tell about yeah. him. And it reached the point where I thought, I've, I've got so many good Chris Wyatt stories. Don't necessarily need him <laughs> to back them all up. But yeah, he was, you know, you've mentioned a few, but, you know, urban surfers, like standing up on the roof of a taxi, driving down the streets of Buenos Aires after beating Argentina in Argentina. You just kind of think, that's the kind of story going yeah. out now. If, well, that thing, sort of thing would no, happen it wouldn't. now. Um, but yeah, you know, chain smoker. I, I, I particularly liked him referring to menthols as fitness fags. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, just like a perfect, uh, yeah, perfect illustration of how he, he kept the uh, kind of some of the amateur spirit alive. Completely. But like you say, he was, was playing rugby into his forties. Absolutely, astonishing, really. Considering yeah. you know, he, we we all knew what a, yeah, one man riot. You know, you knew yeah. you knew what why it was like on a on a on a night out. Fast forward four years, very little public expectation going into the 2003 World Cup, but the players all seem to back Hansen, even if the press didn't. And that that is something that really came through strongly. You know, they, they he unlike Henry on the ten game winning streak, Hansen went on a ten, 10 game, game losing, losing yeah. streak. Um, and as you'll remember, the, the press were out to get him and he came up with this mantra about the performance being more important than the result and ultimately if the performance keep improving the results will come but that really didn't wash after a while yeah. and, and people thought you know he, he just he's lost his mojo if he ever had it he's not the right guy for the job and there were a lot of agitators running him sacked before the World Cup which is something that we've seen Wales do yeah. on multiple occasions um, and there was that flashpoint moment where he lost heavily to a, an England second string in a World Cup warm-up and then picked his second string for the game against Scotland and was summoned to the chief executive's office and told, pick your first team, because if you lose this game, you're for the chop. And to be fair to Hansen, he stuck to his guns. Yeah. I've picked the team, I've told the players, this is my strategy, this is my plan. And they went out and beat Scotland fairly convincingly with the second string, saved him his job, and then we all know what happened next. You know, nearly beat New Zealand, perhaps should have beaten England, and, and it was... A, a genuine turning point, but yeah, to go back to your point, Jed, you know they they were real acolytes yeah. against those players. They they believed that his methods would eventually bear fruit because they could see how progressive he was as a thinker, how strategic he was, and and he almost stripped everything back and went for a holistic approach. You know, he realised I could come in and tinker with a few things yeah. at the top and get a few results, but actually, if I want sustained success from the bottom up, yeah. bottom up, fitness needs to improve core basic skills need to improve and players need to know why they're doing certain things something Stephen Jones said really resonated with me in terms of the way they attacked they didn't just think about their attacking shape but about the opposition's defensive shape and how they could manipulate mm. the defensive shape into certain patterns to create holes for themselves and I just kind of thought wow that's that is holistic yeah. you're not just thinking about what you do when you've got the ball but about what you do influences what the opposition does and it's kind of quite advanced thinking in terms of modern rugby and, and I just think they all thought do you know what this this eventually is going to work and when it did probably one of my favourite quotes from that chapter was was Alfie describing it as a matrix moment yeah eventually it just clicked and everything slowed down and time and space seemed to slow down and the holes appeared the gaps appeared and it was like 
this is the moment we've all been waiting for. And I think I'd always, I'd always thought as a fan, it was a little bit more by luck than design because that side was essentially a second string that went out to play yeah. in New Zealand. Lambs to the slaughter. Lambs to the slaughter. And, and you know, Shane just, Shane in particular ran right, but there were, there were a number of players who had great games that day, Jonathan Thomas, Alex yeah. Pop, and they all, they all had fantastic games. Um, and I think I'd always thought, well, it was, it was a bit more by luck than design. And then when you see it from, that, from the player's perspective, it just happens to click in, in that game yeah. rather than it being a whole host of changes. Absolutely. And there, there was a, a myth, wasn't there, that the players congregated behind the yeah. post after they conceded an early try in that New Zealand game. And they congregated behind the post and said, sod the game plan, yeah. sod everything we've learned, let's just chuck it about and see what happens. And again, you speak to all the players, it's a total yeah. myth. It's a, it's a romantic myth that the Welsh rugby supporting public loves to believe. But as you've said, it was, it was more the case that after all this hard work and application, suddenly things just fell into place. And no one could have predicted that that was the game that was going to mm. happen. It just happened to be against the world's best side, yeah. playing kind of high-tempo uh, rugby that, that we all love to watch. But I, I, I remember as a fan ringing up, and, you know, kind of displaying the kind of hubris that we're, we all are used to in Wales. I rang up. Uh, a friend of mine in New Zealand at a time when international calls probably cost a fair <laughs> bit as well and uh, half time and I, I was sort of gloating because yeah. I, I thought we'd done it I thought we were going to win and, uh, and of course it came back to bite me and he was quite smug in return but uh, yeah it, it was uh, a real moment uh, disappointing in the way that we didn't kick on that following campaign because 2004 yeah. wasn't particularly no, I remember, inspiring I remember going to the, the Scotland game um, and we just you know, completely wiped the floor with them. Shane on one wing, Reese Williams on the other, and, yeah. and we looked so convincing that day. But we had so much front football. Yeah. And it, was the, it was either the week or the fortnight after in Ireland, and they just taught us a lesson up front. Yeah. Which yeah, I remember the, the kind of the disappointment of that. Again, move, move it. You know, if that was something of a of a, a nice memory around World Cup, they probably don't get much worse than two thousand and seven. You know, and <coughs> ultimately, you know, kind of. Gareth Jenkins took the bullet for that but the players seemed to take their fair share of responsibility when you spoke to them yeah I think there was a lot of love for Gareth Jenkins mm. you know that, uh, again as, a, as someone who grew up a lot watching Clenetley and then the Scarlets Gareth Jenkins was a legend yeah. down west and I, it was almost it, like Cameron James-esque and the people thought he would be an anointed Welsh coach one day he was just waiting for his moment and you wonder if his moment was 2005 when, yeah. when Ruddock kind of came out of complete left mm. field and, and got the job and, and I think there was there was almost this assumption that he was a man out of time by 2007 and that his time had passed a bit like Gino, Gino there, so I was just thinking that yeah and yeah sort of parallels there in there so, so one club men was, as well you know done all of their stuff you know Gareth had done everything as a, as a player and as a coach yeah. from athlete yeah. or Scarlett's and then you know, very similar with Guy Noves and Toulouse. Completely, there are definite parallels to be drawn there. But I think, as you say, it's an easy out of it to say Gareth Jenkins was at fault. You know, and there there is stuff in there about how he was perhaps a little more lax yeah. compared to previous regimes and allowed his players to be on a longer leash and wasn't maybe as disciplined about diet and fitness and things. But then you speak to some of the other players and they say, in terms of his game understanding and his strategy, he was incomparable yeah. Um, and yeah the players you know they they just got sucked the Fiji game was the flashback wasn't it they got sucked into a game of open mm. fast rugby against a nation that 
are the best in the world. It was, it was ultimately a game of sevens, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so I, I, I think you're right. You know, they, they, no one wanted to chuck Gareth under the bus. And I think there was a lot of sympathy for yeah. him, the fact that you know he was dealt with in the way he was, and you know that lonely vignette when he climbs off the bus with four against it. Yeah, yeah. he just walks off on his own, doesn't want to face the press. But again, a bit of sort of black humour in it. Martin Williams, who describes. He'd already asked his missus to book a holiday before he got home, and yeah. as they landed in Cardiff Airport, there was a bunch of Wales fans waiting to take off for Marseille to watch Wales in the quarterfinals. Yeah. I mean, that must have been a, a, a particularly humbling moment for them all. You got to got to feel for the boys. Well, and as well, you know, I think the the perception from the outside looking in was that preparation seemed pretty lax, but. I had no idea that preparation included a sheep inside Dwayne Peel's bed. <laughs> yeah, Dwayne Peel, you know, he comes across as a quiet guy yeah. on the pitch, but he was apparently the arch prankster in that squad and was, <laughs> would always wind players up and tip a tin of baked beans in people's beds and, and just do whatever he could to, to needle people. So Mark Jones, big teammate of his at the Scarlet, and born and raised on a farm. So they were staying in um, Pornichet and there was a the sort of self-catering apartments and there was a, a sheep in the field next to them that was quite aggressive boiler accounts and Mark just asked the farmer if he could borrow him one day to, and the farmer replied in French well, you, can, you can't if you can catch him and thinking he, he wouldn't have a chance but of course Mark was used to <laughs> picking up sheep so um, he waited until Dwayne was doing a press conference locked the sheep in Dwayne's room for, for what he thought would be about five ten minutes, but the press conference was late starting, it overran, and I think he was in there for about forty five minutes in the end, until of course untold carnage and chewed and ate everything, including apparently Dwayne Peel's expensive watch. Um, <laughs> and then Mark persuaded the S4C camera crew to do a little tour of the complex afterwards for a piece for them which would end in Dwayne's room. And, of course, they would then open the door and see the, the mess that it caused. So that was all captured on camera, the complete devastation of Dwayne's room, uh, and his reaction as well, which is probably still in the archives yeah. somewhere. But probably the most satisfying thing from Mark's point of view is not only did he destroy Dwayne's room, but apparently she had fleas. So Dwayne spent the rest of the tournament kind of scratching... <laughs> Yeah, much yeah, kind of a nice uh, a nice analogy for kind of the way the team performed, really scratching from one game to another. Um, happier times in, in in 2011, and a campaign really kind of inspired by by Sam Warburton and his captaincy. Obviously, everyone contributed, but he was very much the figurehead for for good and bad. And you've titled one of the chapters "The Real Sam Warburton." So, who is the real Sam Warburton? Yeah, it's really interesting because his public persona is, you know, Mr. Nice Guy, mm. uh, no vices, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, um, is incredibly polite and diplomatic, mm. you know, in press conferences and his dealings with the public, with referees, with members of the opposition, which is why Warren Gannon entrusted him with the captaincy for so long for the Lions as well as Wales. Um, but yeah, you speak to a lot of people, and to Sam himself, about the man behind the mask, and he is one of the most driven, competitive mm. players you'll ever meet. And get him in the changing room before the game and watch him kind of pull the, the pin and unleash his, his pre-match 
war cry is, is, is something that you probably would be quite taken aback by. And, you know, there's a bit in there where he says his, his brother's parents-in-law watched one of the DVDs, yeah. The Lions, in 2013, where you know he, he was just v- virtually exploding with rage in the changing room, and they didn't like it. Because yeah, yeah. They'd grown used to this lovely, polite, diplomatic... Yeah, mild-mannered, yeah. Mild-mannered guy. And they were like, no, that's, that's not sound. That's not the sound we know. And Ben, his brother, had to correct them and say, no, no, that yeah, yeah. is the real Sam Warburton. You know, the rest is, is a well-manicured sort of front. And that's not to say he isn't a lovely, polite, yeah. well-mannered bloke, but he is incredibly competitive. And, and the kind of self-belief, you know, there's one point in there where, you know, that 2011 World Cup, he didn't drink. They had a yeah. wet and a dry chart. And over the course of the tournament, most people succumbed, as you'd expect, yeah. to a, beer after a victory or a glass of wine with their steak in the evening but he was so determined and single-minded he was like I want to be the best version of myself I can be I can have a drink when the tournament's over hopefully after we've won it he's so incredibly disciplined because he didn't want to think if he went out there and he missed a tackle or yeah. he didn't want to think it was because I had some alcohol in my system or because I hadn't slept well enough that night you know he wanted to be the very best version of himself and, and it almost benefited everyone because Wales were held up as these paragons of virtue at the same time England were being crucified right, yeah, the for their dwarf tossing sex pests yeah. jumping off ferries yeah. and, and all sorts and, and again it's quite funny because you speak to some of the other guys and, and they said this idea that we were all monks yeah. is nonsense you know Warren Gatland has always been good at allowing them a bit of freedom yeah. and you know they were celebrating their victories and they were going out but they just weren't going Crazy and getting themselves in the in the papers. They weren't being scrutinised yeah. to the degree that England were. But he, as their front of house person, I think everyone just thought, "Well, he acts that yeah. way. The whole squad must act that way." And it, it wasn't the case. But yeah, I mean, uh, like like you say, that <coughs> that tournament really hinged. Yeah, it did hinge on one moment, and it didn't. But it hinged on that one game, and in a way, you know, the way Gatlin speaks about it in the book. Of the aftermath of Sam's red card, he was kind of expecting a 20 point deficit because mm. not just because he was a captain, but because he was such an influential player. He was having the tournament of his life. Absolutely. And the way the players responded, it kind of almost just adds, it adds to the heartbreak even more. It does, because ultimately, as is expressed by virtually everyone I spoke to mm. in that chapter, Wales should have won that yeah. game. You know, the, the sending off, and I think as Wales supporters, when it happened after 16, 17 yeah. minutes, I think any, even the most optimistic supporter would be forgiven for thinking that's, that's it. it. Yeah. You know, the, like you say, you can maybe recover from a winger being sent off, but someone, as you said, captain, playing the tournament of his life, you know, the turnovers he was winning, the, the, fact, the way he was slowing down opposition ball in that tournament, he was so influential. Um, so to to get within a sniff of winning that game, because France went into their shells, and you know, they weren't yeah. offering anything at attack. And there's all those what-if moments, aren't there? You know, the Lee Halfpenny penalty, which was admittedly ridiculously far from the post and, you know, outside of most people's ranges. Um, so I don't think most people were expecting him to get that, but he beat himself up about yeah. it because he's such a perfectionist. There was that period at the end, you know, when Jamie Roberts bust through and got over the game line and perhaps there was an opportunity for a drop goal, but it's so easy to say with hindsight, isn't it? All those little chances that yeah. could, could have been because it was a one point game and then of course you know New Zealand went into their shells in the final and France who 
inexplicably had lost to Tonga and been thrashed by New Zealand in the pool stages, they came within two points yeah. of I, the World Cup. I always, I always think though, like, because I, 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 I looked at it like in that way to start with, where you thought, oh yeah, you know, France froze up in the final. Uh, sorry, New Zealand froze up against France in the final. I think had it been Wales, I don't think they would have. I don't think they would have felt that expectation because you know France had stung them so often particularly yeah. in World Cups that I think and the, the pressure of being at home and having not won a World Cup since the first one yeah. you know for a side that has dominated rugby throughout that time I think that's what got to them whereas I, you know it, it pains me to say it but as well as Wales played throughout that tournament I think if we were the ones in the final I, I think they would have been a lot more loosened and probably it would have been a game too far anyway Yeah, it's, that's what I tell myself Ross it's, 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 it's you know, you cannot, you can't know, can you? And I, but I do feel, like I say, you speak to everyone who's been involved in the World Cup campaign, even 2007, mm. because people say Fiji gave South Africa a really yeah. good game in the quarterfinals and South Africa went on to win it. So even 2007, which is viewed as a disaster tournament, there, were, there are ways of tweaking history retrospectively yeah. and thinking, actually, well, if this had happened, if that had happened. But I genuinely think. 2011 was the best chance in, in history. People are saying this year yeah. is, you know, because of the depth Wales have built, but I, that was one for me, I think. Momentum was in Wales' favour. France had stuttered their way through, yeah. like we said, lost the lost Tonga, lost yeah. New Zealand. But, you know, they, internal warfare, they weren't even listening to their coach. Uh, There's a mutiny on that, which is often when the French are best, let's be honest. But, um, yeah, with Wales, you just felt momentum was behind them they were everyone's second team you know yeah. New Zealand oh, they really warmed to Wales didn't they yeah. big time and you know I remember my dad who you know was, he's not he's not a big traveller but he, he rang me up the night before the semi and said should we go should we book flights you know he, he wanted to jump on a flight to New Zealand and because I think everyone sensed this is once in a lifetime hopefully it won't be yeah. hopefully there'll be an opportunity this year but there was, there was definitely a sense I think for me and a lot of the people you know, in the book, that that was almost a moment of destiny that yeah. just fell from their grasp. Four years later, we did. You know, despite a squad being kind of decimated by injury, that incredible game at Twickenham, which you know, I'm not sure I've seen anything quite like it. Yeah. From a, and, and you know, that's saying something. Uh, but obviously, that game really hinged on the on the Lloyd Williams kick to set up Gareth Davis. One thing I, I enjoyed reading in there, or found quite strange, was was Brynmore Lloyd's father obviously yeah. Wales international himself yeah. wasn't watching was no. in the stadium but, but couldn't bring himself to watch when Lloyd got on the pitch and, and apparently that's the thing he, he yeah. just he gets incredibly nervous watching Lloyd and yeah he, he's sort of taking himself off for a for a, for a wee and uh, by all accounts just didn't want to go back because he was too nervous watching the game and of course that was when the seminal moment happened and it's funny isn't it because as you just said Wales were decimated by injury. We lost Reese Webb, um, Lee Halfpenny going into the tournament, and Jonathan yeah. Davis. And then in that game alone, three of the three quarter line went off injured. So there were three players playing out of position for the last 20 odd minutes. But ironically, that's probably what won them the game. Yeah. Because Lloyd Williams, being a scrum half on the wing, was the only one who could, would probably have A, thought of that infield kick and B, pulled it off. Yeah. As Gareth Davis said, is it's a scrum half thing to do and the fact that Gareth Davis another scrum half on the pitch was running the kind of support line that he'd been running for you know 12 months yeah. under Rob Howley's tutelage 
those things all fell into place because of the enforced injury changes and it probably wouldn't have happened if the original 15 had still been on the pitch but yeah as you say a phenomenal piece of theatre you know for England to be I think they were 10 points up at one stage and it looked dead and buried it and it just felt didn't it as though Wales' time was up all these injuries had finally caught up with them and it was a game too far at Twickenham England's World Cup in front of their own fans sometimes you just think things aren't meant to be it was kind of the opposite of the, the France game four years prior, really. And, you know, I, I had that thought when, when the ball bobbled loose to Hallam Amos and he, I can't remember who it was, but he tried to defend and dislocated his shoulder. Yeah, he thought, this is Farrell, wasn't it? Was it yeah. Farrell? Yeah, it was like, this is not, not going to be our day. And, and the fact that, that it was, and, you know, in, in those kind of circumstances was just, yeah, one of the, the true great days to be, a, to be a Wales fan. And people forget Dan Bigger's kick. Yeah, was, yeah of course. Yeah, right. The conversion level things, but then there was a kick to win it which was 49 metres it was virtually on the halfway line and um, for bigger to nail that in those circumstances you know and he, he you know he's, he's been first choice for a while now recently yeah. Ganscombe's taken over but people forget don't they that he played second fiddle to Reese Priestland for a long time of course, yeah. before he got his shot and when he did in that World Cup he was uh, he was sensational I'm going to ask you this, and again, feel free to feel free to not answer it because I know you know in your in your day job you have to be you know kind of very close to the close to the players. But we've been having this ongoing conversation on the podcast that the fact Dan Bigger starts on the bench is winning Wales these big games because he comes on and he's the, in my opinion, he's the most mentally strong player in that last 20 minutes that you have to have him on the pitch. And again, I spoke. We spoke to um, we spoke to Kai Griffiths, who knows him very well. Yeah. And Kai said, "No, no, no. Dan, Dan needs to be on the pitch. He wants to be on the pitch." But for me, I feel reassured knowing that you've got bigger to bring off the bench. Well, if you need any evidence to support your argument, just look at the England game from yeah. this year, just gone. Because he came on in the last twenty minutes when the game was in the balance, and there were three things he did that were world class. I remember there was one. When the ball went back inside Wales' half, whether it was from a scrum or a ruck, and I think Gareth Davis or someone misfielded it, essentially, and Bigger just scooped the ball up, torpedo kicked it about 70 yards into touch, relieved the pressure in the blink of an eye. And that could have been a pivotal moment. If England had piled on through and turned the ball over in Wales' 22, could have been a turning point. There was the pass to Corey Hill for the try after... 32 yeah. phases whatever it was 36 phases you know just that bullet pass just got him perfectly on the angle which created the try and then the cream um, of them all yeah. that crossfield kick for, for Josh Adams you know and if you watch it in slow motion he pretty much takes it and kicks it with one hand so those three interventions alone they almost were I, mean, I, turned, I was watching the game with Sean Holly and I turned to him and said could you conceivably give him out of the match for 20 minute yeah. cameo off the bench and we kind of thought, maybe you could yeah. maybe you could he was that influential and I think to go back to your point you know when he was when Anscombe seemed to have superseded him as first choice there was a school of thought that thought well bigger maybe like Lee Halfpenny is a starter or, or, or a non-23 player yeah. he's, because he's not an imp- he's not going to come the on the temptation is you want yeah is you want a James Hook on the bench Absolutely. or you know someone who is you know a, a Danny Cipriani type who can come yeah. on and turn a game by scoring tries but test matches particularly in World Cups are won exactly. by, by small margins and having a guy who can goal kick as well as he does yeah. um, and doesn't make mistakes very often and yeah. is so good in defence that's what I think it, it, yeah. it adds so much like you say 
experience, mm. presence of mind. You know, if, if there are younger players around him who are maybe slipping into panic mode, there's probably none better than him to calm everyone yeah. down, to issue the right orders at the right time. You know, as you know, he's, he's not afraid to state his opinion, he's vocal, and, and yeah, I, I think the evidence is there. That's not to say you couldn't start. No. And the, you know, the rumour is that Gatlin's going to take two fly halves to the World Cup, uh, in which case both of them will probably feature in every game, yeah. either from the bench or, or starting. So, yeah, I, I think he's a, he's a genuine asset. The book finishes with uh, with the Grand Slam, and you know, obviously, we'll, we've we touched on a few bits of it there. Un- <coughs> unforgettable uh, series of games, but off the back of that, many are suggesting Wales could lift the Rugby World Cup. We talked about the sense of belief across various different World Cups. What do you think the the sense of belief is in this current squad? I, I think it's it's huge, and it's interesting because. You know, they've definitely got a sense of reality about them. They're very grounded, this squad. And there's no... Um, I don't think there's no tendency to go overboard and think that the finished product, because, you know, a lot of them were quick to remind us in the book, you know, that they scored the fewest tries in the championship, yeah. yet you know, won the Grand Slam. And that tells its own story. You know, so I think they... By their own admission, they'd like to be in a position where they're scoring more tries. Um, but then you go back historically to teams that have won World Cups. They're generally teams that defend incredibly yeah. well and have a world-class goal kicker. You know, you look at England 03, South Africa 95. Um, that's generally what happens. Finals are tight, low-scoring games. And teams that can shut out the opposition. It might not be... You know, the razzle-dazzle that the fans want, but if it wins you a World Cup, well, that's it. who cares? So I think from that point of view, they've got every right to be very confident, you know, second in the world rankings, as opposed to in 2015 where they were ninth, yeah. and therefore landed up in the pool of death. So to go from ninth four years ago to second this time around, and when you think about those two critical games in the, the Grand Slam, England and Ireland, you know, the two games that people thought Wales would come unstuck... They were pretty dominant performers. Yeah. England, you know, it took until that last quarter and, and bigger, as we've said, to really turn the screw. But the Ireland game, from the first whistle to the last, there was only one winner in that game. And again, one try scored in the second yeah. minute. So it wasn't the scoreline makes it look like a thrashing, and it should have been a, a shutout. We're off that injury time try, but just the way they control the conditions, the way the Welsh back row didn't allow the Irish back. I mean, the, the more vaunted Irish back row oh, yeah. didn't allow them a sniff uh, the way they control territory and possession you know, I think it all augurs well obviously World Cups are very very difficult to win and if you had to put your house in it you'd still say New Zealand are yeah, the of course. outstanding <laughs> favourites but you know there's an argument they're not quite the team they were four years ago um, so yeah I think without wanting to, to be overly Optimistic. I think Welsh fans have got the right. There's reason to, to hope, be, right? Yeah. To be cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll just finish on this because we've gone 40 minutes without mentioning Alan and Jones, which is definitely a record for this podcast. <laughs> How important do you think he is to this side, not just as a player but as a as a figurehead, if you like? Yeah, he, he he's massive, isn't he? And great news from a Welsh perspective that he signed another contract because mm. you know at the stage he was in his career. Having been a one club man all these years, uh, he had some big money offers on the table, and, and you know, rightly so. Um, 
I go back to the Lions tour in 2017 when he was picked ahead of Mauro Toje in the test side and there was collective yeah. outrage on the tour from English fans from Irish fans as well and a certain section of the, the press corps on tour because um, I still think and this sort of baffles me to a degree I still think he's underrated yeah. in certain quarters outside of Wales I think the Welsh public know how valuable he is but there was this gasp of astonishment when the team was announced because Mara told you who'd, who'd had a brilliant tournament but I think that probably answers your question as to how important he yeah. is Warren Gatlin knew that yes you've got this young hungry incredibly athletic in form second row but that was a test series against the mm. world champions on their own patch the alternative pick is a guy who's played or now I think has played is it nine consecutive tests yeah. for the Lions which is other than Graham Price I'm not sure anyone's I'll vow to your superior knowledge on that one but that sounds right so that alone tells you his value the fact he's so durable even as he approaches his mid-30s he's still got the stamina the fortitude and the experience to to go and do that kind of thing and I think yeah there are other players that would be kind of catastrophic to lose Mm. but I think he's probably the one individual if, if Wales were to lose him before the World Cup their chances a victory would probably drop 20%. Yeah. Whereas other players, you think, oh, you it's know, a blow, it's but it's replaceable, yeah. But yeah, so. Because uh, I mean, you, you look at it, and, and that Grand Slam was without Toby Falate, was without Lee Halfpenny, yeah. and I feel like I'm missing someone else within there. But, you know, without, again, in the past, you needed all of those players fit in order to achieve Definitely. these things. But I, I agree with Alan Wynn, it's like there is a, a mythical. Things surrounding him that, that kind of makes Wales feel unbeatable. When Gatland said we've forgotten mm. how to lose, I, I feel like a lot of that stems not just from the coaches but from him as a captain. Yeah. So standards he sets as well. Yeah. You know, the, he people will say I, I, was, I did a, uh, an article with Rugby World recently um, where we, I was part of a panel picked the hundred best players in the world right now, and there was a New Zealand um, journalist in the room, Liam Napier, and. Uh, we were debating, you know, we kind of all chucked our names into the hat and then we were trying to narrow it down and we all picked our own individual top mm. five and had to justify our reasons why. And Alan Wynne was eventually voted the best player in the world right now. And I mean, I could feel a bit of discomfort from Liam, the key regionalist, thinking, he's not as good as Brody Rattel, yeah. is he? As, as a player. And you can certainly make that case, you know, he's not as, perhaps as athletic, he's, you know, he's not as... Explosive a carrier um, doesn't hasn't hasn't got as many eye-catching YouTube moments. Yeah. But if you add up everything we've spoken about, the experience, the the big match mentality, the victories under pressure, and just the the glue element, you know, Brody Retallick isn't as talismanic in the yeah. All Blacks because they've got so many world-class players. But Alan Wynne Jones just occupies a different status. Well, and I think that's why it tipped the scales in his balance. Be the, the best player in the world right now. You know, people argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
can fill us with a bit of confidence and hopefully he gets there, uh, he gets yeah. there in one piece. Ross, been fantastic speaking to you. As I say, thoroughly enjoyed the book and uh, would encourage any of our listeners to go out there and, uh, and grab themselves a copy, especially ahead of the World Cup. Perfect reading to, uh, to get you in the mood. Ross Harris, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Sports Social Podcast Network.